Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Hey, it's Adam Isaac, the producer of Inquiring Minds. Just a quick note before today's episode. We have all been watching the escalation of police violence against protesters and black people, and if you consider yourself someone who cares about the injustices and racism being levied against black communities, I want to ask you to do something about it. If you have a platform, use it. If you have money to spare, donate it. And at the very least, you have your voice and your time. There is a deep anti-blackness in America, and this is an inflection point. When white silence equals violence, there is no defending complacency. We support black voices, we support protesters, and we're horrified by the actions of police. Please consider taking action. You can find more information on our website or in the episode description. All right, on to the show. You and Betty and the Nancys and Bills and Joes and Janes will find in the study of science a richer more rewarding life. Hey, welcome to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. This is a podcast that explores the space where science and society collide. We want to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it matters. And joining me in studio today is Adam Bristol. Hi, Adam. Hey, Andre. Thanks for having me. So this week, we have a return guest on Inquiring Minds, Mario Livio. He's an astrophysicist and an internationally best-selling author. And last time we talked to him about curiosity and the importance of curiosity in science and in all endeavors that require creativity. Now he's just come out with a new biography of Galileo. It's called Galileo and the Science Deniers. And what better person to write a biography of Galileo than someone who spent 24 years with the Hubble Space Telescope? I was so curious to hear Mario's take on what made Galileo's work so important and so special. And the way that he framed his book actually has implications on all kinds of ways in which we talk about science. Mario Livio, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you for having me. I loved in the preface how you used your own experience with the Hubble telescope to kind of illuminate why Galileo's story is so important and relevant for today. And in a bit of a departure from my usual interview style, I was hoping that maybe you would indulge me and that we could use those six uh, ideas or six sort of landmarks that you describe, which I'll I'll talk about in a minute, uh, to sort of frame the conversation. Are you game for that? Sure, yeah. Okay, so... So for our listeners who haven't read the book yet, uh, I highly recommend it. You should go and read it. There's so many great stories in it that we certainly don't have time to cover. 
But um, these four ideas or four stages, four reasons why the Hubble telescope seems to have captured the hearts and minds of so many people are images, discoveries, drama, ingenuity, courage, longevity, and dissemination. Right. So it's six, not four, six. Sorry, six. Did I say four? My apologies. Yes, six. (laughs) Six. Um, I I am teaching my six-year-old every day, so maybe my counting has gone down to his level. (laughs) But let's start with images. And it was interesting to me that this was sort of one reason that you felt Galileo Galileo's work was so important and so influential in its age, the importance of images. So tell us a little bit about both Hubble and Galileo and how images were important in terms of their work. So, of, of course, I mean, in the case of Hubble, that's very easy. I mean, everybody has seen Hubble images. They are spectacular images. Um, I, I remember that once some uh, journalist called them the Sistine Chapel of our time, you know, and things like that. So they are spectacular images. Um, in, in the case of uh, Galileo, it is less known that images played uh, a role. But, for example, um, you know, when he observed the moon, uh, there was this British astronomer, Harriet, who also observed the moon at the same time. And, Her- and they saw the same features. And Harriet you know, just did some drawings where you cannot tell anything. What are you looking at? While Galileo used his artistic education, he he actually learned drawing as an artist, and he actually managed to understand, first of all, that what he was looking at was this rugged surface with craters and mountains, and then to actually draw them, you know, as wash drawings, uh, and he put those into, into his book, uh, the sidereal messenger, and those were spectacular images, still are today, um, which really showed the lunar surface. In addition, you know, he he was uh, sometimes acting as consultant to to some, you know, Artemisia Gentileschi, which was a famous painter. She consulted with Galileo on painting. Um, uh, his friend Chigoli was a famous painter and. He painted the moon just as Galileo saw it in his telescope. Until then, people were painting the moon, you know, as this sort of spotless sphere and things like that. So, yeah, Galileo really used his artistic knowledge and in his drawings and in conveying the science. So it's so interesting to me because I do think that data visualization is something that is becoming more and more complex these days and more and more important as we're trying to kind of understand uh, the, the latest scientific discoveries and how a really good graphic can change uh, a paper's fate from being completely forgotten, read by you know three people to be going viral on the internet. You're absolutely right. I mean, you know, and and especially, you know, we live now in also in an age of big data and uh, big data involves lots of numbers. And, uh, you know, it's, it's very difficult to grasp lots of numbers. But if you actually put those in a good, good, you know, graphic that gives you the information in a very clear fashion, it really changes the entire understanding. There's even a time when you when you talk about, you know, this importance of sort of transforming visual experiences into intellectual conclusions, something that Galileo agreed was really important. 
And I feel like that is kind of a, a turning point or an idea in his time uh, that seemed radical. And this notion that like anyone should then be convinced or understand intellectually what's going on because they have this visual experience. Correct. And and this was all very important to Galileo. You know, he did other things, not just, you know, using his art. But, uh, for example, he wrote most of his books in Italian rather than in Latin. Uh, you know, Latin, it was just the province of very few, you know, an elite, uh, while Italians could be read by, by most people. So he insisted on doing that. He sent telescopes all over Europe so that people would be able to see what he was seeing with their own eyes. So outreach was extraordinarily important to him. And so that gets us to number two, which is discoveries, the discoveries that he made. And so can you tell us a little bit about why Galileo, or how Galileo was able to make these discoveries? What was it about his circumstances or his personality or his drive and what are some of the most important discoveries that maybe people haven't associated with Galileo just yet? Yeah, so he made many, many discoveries. In fact, you know, in the period of a few months at the end of 1609-1610, he probably made more discoveries than almost any other person in the history of science. Uh, so most of those were with a telescope. Now, the reason he was able to do that was that there was this new invention, a telescope, so a new technology. Uh, which he was able to use. Uh, but he didn't just take the telescope that was available somewhere, you know, on the street, which was a four-power telescope. He started building his own telescopes and very rapidly developed telescopes that were more than 20-power telescopes. And then there was this additional thing, yes, you know, with while other people, you know, may have looked, uh, used telescopes to look at uh, distant ships, he actually turned his telescopes to the heavens. And there he was able to discover all these things. You know, I talked already about the moon. He discovered four satellites of Jupiter, the very first objects to be discovered since antiquity in the solar system. You know, since there, you, no other new ones were discovered since antiquity. He discovered the phases of Venus. He, he didn't discover sunspots, but... He studied sunspots and correctly understood what they were. So he, he saw that there were lots of stars in the Milky Way. He saw that Saturn had a very, very funny shape. He couldn't quite see the rings, but he saw that there were these like handles, you know, they looked to him on both sides. Uh, without knowing it, he even discovered Neptune, but that he didn't know. I mean, he saw Neptune, but he didn't realize that it was a planet. So this is on the astronomical side. In addition, he made many discoveries in mechanics. And those he did by just coming up with these brilliant ideas. You know, people were thinking about free fall, free falling objects, you know. But the thing is, there were no devices to measure time accurately at the time. So, you know, if you drop two balls, they fall for a very short time. And uh, it's very difficult to see if there are any differences in the time or not. So he had this brilliant idea of using inclined planes to get the balls to roll down inclined planes. And there the motion is much slower. In this way, he kind of diluted gravity, if you like, and he was able to make much more precise measurements and thereby uh, discovered the law of free fall. 
that the distance traveled is proportional to the square of the distance. He also discovered that uh, the trajectory of a projectile is, uh, is, describes a parabola, you know, this mathematical uh, shape. So really, in the issue of mechanics, the fact that he did these experiments was really revolutionary. That gets us to probably the most famous part of Galileo's life, the, the drama. <laughs> I think that, you know, all of us sort of uh, probably if we if we were asked to summarize Galileo in one sentence, it would be he showed he was right and uh, the world that he lived in was wrong and he was punished for it. Can you tell us a little bit about the drama in Galileo's life? So everybody knows that there is drama in Galileo's life, but not everybody understands the nature of the drama. Very often it is described as a clash between science and religion. Uh, Galileo absolutely didn't see it as such. He, Like all people, you know, at his age, he was a religious person. He thought that scripture, you know, could not make mistakes, or at least he wrote like that. But what he did object to was to literal interpretations of the Bible. So basically he said, look, the Bible was not written with the purpose of being a science book. And the best example for that is the fact that even the planets are not named in it. The Bible was written for our salvation and was written in a language that would be understood by common people. So you cannot interpret the text there literally. So when there is a conflict between what observations and reasoning tell you and the text in scripture, it means that you should reinterpret the text. So, you know, one example that is often used a number of times was that in the book of Joshua, it says that, you know, Joshua with the Lord commanded the sun to stand still uh, above the city of Gibeon. Well, that seemed to imply that it's the sun that's moving and not the earth. Uh, Galileo argued that the correct model for the solar system is the Copernican model, namely that it's the Earth and the other planets that revolve around the sun. So, you know, the theologians came in back and said, yeah, but that contradicts what's written in the Bible. And he said, no, no, no. I mean, you know, this is how it looked to them, but that's not, not the interpretation. You shouldn't interpret things literally. And he made this fam very famous, uh, you know, saying where he said that he didn't believe that the same God who has given us our senses and reason uh, wished us to abandon their use. So, you know, so this was the nature of the conflict. And of course, for that, he eventually was put on trial, found vehemently suspected of heresy and uh, condemned to sentence to a house imprisonment for the last eight and a half years of his life. And I want to get back to that as we talk about the implications of, of this story in, in our own time and just the struggle that we continue to face where you have two people who have differing views and they look at the same evidence and come away with differing conclusions, which for those of us who have a basis in science and, and really, you know, feel very strongly that the scientific method is the best way of accessing the truth, it, it's almost unfathomable 
why this happens. Yes. But I want to first talk a little bit more about Galileo and the next uh, uh, idea, which is ingenuity. And, and in particular, I really, what makes this biography so special and so different, uh, there are a lot of things. It's just beautifully written. It's really accessible. Um, but also it's written by an astrophysicist. <laughs> and, uh, and that makes it uh, unique. And so from the perspective of an astrophysicist, what was it about Galileo that you feel is most ingenious? Well, you know, I mentioned already the inclined plane experiments. That was incredible. But what is really incredible are, are two things. One in particular is uh, the fact that he introduced this notion, which was new. You see, the ancient Greeks, which were very smart people, they didn't believe in experiments. Aristotle thought that the way to understand nature is to sit down and think about this. Galileo said, no, the only way to understand nature is to do experiments, observations, and reasoning. So that's one thing. That's a revolution. The second thing, which to this very day, I cannot tell you how he reached that conclusion, was that he claimed that the universe is written in the language of mathematics. Now, today we're very used to this. You know, all the laws of nature that we write are written as mathematical equations. But at his time, there were still no laws of nature written as mathematical equations. In fact, he wrote the very first ones. And yet, he had this incredible intuition to make that statement that the universe is written in the language of mathematics. So these two things, I think, you know, understanding how do you obtain facts about nature and how do you explain it? Which tools do you use? These are the things that really make him uh, revolutionary. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with a modern design that lets you go further and do more. The exterior is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing, complemented by an interior built with integrity. The Defender capability is legendary. Whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions, its durability has been tested to the extreme. Powerful innovations like the intuitive driver display and award-winning infotainment system keep you connected. Innovative camera technologies deliver unobstructed views and effortless maneuvering. And robust cargo capacity means more room for your gear. Ready for a wide range of adventures, the Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, and the Defender 130, which seats up to eight. To drive the Defender is to explore with greater confidence. Push what's possible with a vehicle made to go further. The Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. 
Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. And we've talked about the drama. And in order to continue to do work under those circumstances, you have to have a lot of courage, uh, which is the next idea. And so I wondered if you could start to sort of tell us how the courage that Galileo showed is something that those of us who work in science now, who are faced with a lot of pushback from, you know, often our, our political opponents, uh, you know, what, what it takes to continue to sort of fight the good fight and what can we learn from Galileo? So, so look, I mean, it's not an accident that I entitled the book Galileo and the Science Deniers, yes? Uh, because that was written with an eye on today, on what's happening today. Now, Galileo had to fight against science deniers, and the main reasons for denial of science at his time were religious region, uh, reasons. You know, the, the fact that, uh, you know, what he was saying seemed to contradict literal interpretations of the Bible. When we look at science denial today, uh, most of the time the reasons are different. Religious religions do enter sometimes, you know, for example, in those who continue with creationist ideas, uh, who don't believe in Darwinian evolution and so on, you can find religiosity there. But there are other reasons. When you talk about, let's say, climate change today, uh, usually it's political conservatism and sometimes reasons that have to do with uh, certain economic fights and things of that nature. When you talk about, let's say, you know, the fight against the pandemic, like the one we're experiencing right now, uh, the reasons are sometimes, again, political conservatism and, you know, things that have to do really directly with politics. You know, what you think your base thinks and things of that nature. But the net effect at the end is the same. And Galileo paid a heavy price for trying to defend this intellectual freedom. And intellectual freedom remains as important, if not more important today than it was in his time, in particular. Because, you know, when you talk about things such as fighting a pandemic or uh, climate change, and if you choose to bet against science, which is never a good idea, but in this case, I mean, you are actually betting against the future of life on Earth, which is really absolutely insane. So, you know, this is why I think that Galileo's fight is so relevant for today. And yet, you know, it's been 500 years and it still feels as if they, you know, the, the, this is where I kind of want to get into this idea that even the most beautifully visualized data which should be convincing to all of us, because as as Galileo noted, I mean, you you know, seeing what you what what the truth is, it's it's hard to deny it, and yet 
it seems like it continues to be denied. You're right. And, you know, I've actually struggled with this notion for a while and looked at a number of studies. And you know what is sad? There are many studies now that show that if you have people who are already convinced of something, it doesn't matter how much proof you show them to the contrary, you don't manage to convince them. And what that tells me, you know, I can think of really no other way of tackling this problem other than that we really have to start with the education, you know, and I mean from small children, because by the time you are an adult and you have become opinionated and you have certain convictions, it is extremely difficult to change those even when faced with facts. Yeah, and that's why in one of your previous books, you really advocate the importance of developing curiosity, which you know, is a necessary precursor for this. That's true. That's true. Yes. So that gets us to longevity. Uh, so even though 500 years later, we are still facing some of the same issues, uh, Galileo's work, as, as Galileo continues to be famous, you know, it's, it's, uh, he's, his, his work has stood the test of time. Is there anything that you discovered in your research on, you know, writing his biography that might give us a hint as to what was about what was it about him or his work or his personality that has made him continue to be essentially at least among scientists a household name? Yes, so, you know, of course, he continues to be a household name, I think mainly because of his fight for intellectual freedom. I mean, his discoveries notwithstanding, I mean, of course, fantastic. And uh, like I said, you know, he was one of the founders of what we call today the scientific revolution. But he's a household name, especially to non-scientists, because of his fight for intellectual freedom. And uh, look, I mean, let's remember, it was only Pope John Paul II who really finally declared that Galileo was right and the theologians were wrong. So it took some 350 years for this to happen. Uh, But this is the part that is so good about science. You see, science has this... Science is not always right. I mean, you know, the history of science is full of mistakes made by various scientists. But science has this incredible ability to self-correct. And the self-correction happens sometimes, you know, within a year, sometimes within decades, sometimes maybe it can take centuries. So this ability to self-correct is unique to science and and I think is extraordinarily important. Um, In the case of Hubble, by the way, because you you mentioned, you know, the the parallels that that I I outlined there, uh, just this past Friday, Hubble celebrated its 30th anniversary. It was launched 30 years ago, you know, on the 24th of April. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's one of the longest living scientific experiments in, in the history of science. So that gets us to dissemination. And we've already mentioned about how Galileo had a, a real fondness and, and, and how much importance he put on including everyone in the discussion, in the discoveries, uh, in the science, you know, using Italian as opposed to Latin in his writings, 
using visuals that, you know, can be understood by even people who are not literate. So tell us a little bit about his passion for science communication. So, yeah, I mean, probably the most impressive thing was his campaign with the, with the telescopes. You see, it's one thing to say, look, I discovered uh, the satellites of Jupiter and I discovered that the moon has craters and, uh, and so on. And it's another for you to actually be able to see that with your own eyes. So he came with this incredibly ambitious project, which he presented to the Tuscan court, where he said, look, it's very difficult and very expensive for me to uh, construct so many telescopes, but I would like to construct telescopes and send them all over Europe to all the people that are influential. And by that he meant basically not the scientists themselves, but the patrons of scientists, because, you know, those are the people with the money and, uh, you know, and, and with the influence. So he managed to convince, you know, the, the Tuscan court uh, and the Duke that to fund all of that. And they really funded this project. They paid him to, to construct many telescopes. They were sent all over Europe. Uh, you know, to the Queen of France and things like that. And then people were, and not only with that, they sent the telescope with instructions for their use and also with his book, The Sidereal Messenger, which explained the discoveries. And that is really what made him, at one point, the most known scientist in Europe. So I want to take a minute and remind our listeners that Mario Livio's book, Galileo and the Science Deniers, is now available at booksellers everywhere. And, you know, if you're looking for a good read with a great story that you can then apply in a very important and useful way to try to, you know, fight science denialism, this is the book for you. There is one more idea that I wanted to talk about. I mean, there are lots of ideas that I want to talk about, but I am mindful of the fact that, you know, you are an astrophysicist and a writer, and you have a lot of things that need to get done, I'm sure. But at the end of the book, you end with a couple of sentences that have really stuck with me and that I think are really important to, to think deeply about. So this is, this is what you said. Science attempts to explain and predict the universe. Literature and the arts provide our emotional response to it. Concepts such as freedom of thought emerge from the fusion of these disciplines. Tell us a little bit about those ideas and why it is so important for us to not just celebrate the sciences, but to also understand what role the humanities can serve in fostering uh, a, better, a better life for us, but also the dissemination of science. Yes. So, look, there was this uh, author and chemist, C.P. Snow, who in the 1950s talked about this concept of two cultures. He was lamenting the fact that in England at the time, he perceived that there is a gap opening between the humanities and the sciences, in the sense that, uh, in his case, he noted that the people from the humanities tended to call themselves the intellectuals while, you know, taking scientists outside of that definition. And that has been perceived by other people as well. And, uh, you know, people argue to this very day whether that gap 
is widened or actually is less pronounced today. My point, the point I was trying to make is, look, Galileo himself could not have understood this concept. To him, surely the humanities and the sciences were part of just one human culture. He was, you know, he, he could cite entire poems by heart. He wrote essays about Italian poets. Like I said, he had friends who were painters. He was a musician himself. He was a, an accomplished lute player. His father was a musician and a music theorist. So to him, it was certain, you know, that uh, he was a real, what we would call today a Renaissance man, not just because he lived at the time of the Renaissance, but because he really thought all of that as part of one culture. And I still believe to this very day that we need to at, at least try to see all parts of this as part of one culture. In the same way, I, I, I mentioned this in the book, that in the same way that I believe that everyone should read or see a Shakespeare play, they should also know that there are such things as laws of nature, um, you know, which seem to be true everywhere in the universe and which all systems seem to obey. Now, I'm not saying not everybody needs to be a scientist in the same way that not everybody needs to be a poet. But I think that each one of those needs to know more about the other part because exactly of this thing that explanations of nature and our response to nature are complementary and, and they create this one human culture. Uh, and, and, and that was very important to me. And I think Galileo exemplifies that, that type of uh, fusion. You know, and I think these days, as everybody's emotions are so heightened because our entire way of life is being turned upside down uh, by this pandemic, it makes me wonder whether the emotional response part is one that we are not thinking carefully enough about when we're trying to disseminate science. Uh, because so often people behave from a place of where their emotions are leading them rather than what the data are telling them. Can you talk a little bit about that? And is this a missing link that we who communicate science are ignoring to our own peril? No, I don't know that you are ignore we are ignoring it. I think that, you know, we should we should pay attention to it. Look, I I'll give you an example that has nothing to do with science. Uh it it has to do but it has to do with the current pandemic. For example, there is this big question of whether or not, you know, things should open or not, you know, the economy is doing very badly and things like that. So there is, there are here people who uh, react on one side and are very compassionate and feel very emotional about, you, you know, the very sad uh, facts that so many people die from this pandemic and so on. And then there are others who think mostly about the economical side, you know, this, they want the stock market to come back and, and things like that. It's a perfect example where one should actually think of both. I mean, both are very important. It is very important that people are losing their jobs. We should feel 
compassion for that. We should feel empathy for that. It, it is very important that people are losing their livelihood. But at the same time, it is extraordinarily important that people are dying. And, and we should do everything we can to minimize the loss of life. So it's again, you know, this balance that one has to, in everyone's mind, has to work out. And, and the same is true between, you know, science, humanities, and, and this. It's, it's, it's again, it's the wanting explanation and the curiosity, and at the same time, the emotional response. Uh, you know, we mentioned the, the images, that there are these. The response of most people to the images is not because of the science. It's, it's the emotional response. Yes, we find those, those images moving, and we find them even more moving if they represent real structures in the universe or the history of the universe. At the same time, you know, we learn new things about the universe, but we also respond emotionally to it. So this is, the, the, the I think, the balance that everyone has to work out for themselves. And, and hopefully books of, of, of this type, I mean, you know, they try to combine the two. Uh, you know, I can only hope that they help in this respect. Mario Olivio, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much for having me. So I think one of the things that I found most compelling was how data visualization seems to be such a critical factor in terms of disseminating science. So there are a couple of things that he talked about that were important in Galileo's actions that made his science more accessible. One is publishing in Italian versus Latin so that people could read it who weren't necessarily educated scholars. And also this this aspect of making sure that people could see what it is that you're talking about. And I think that's so important today when so much science is highly computational, you know, obviously it's highly complex. And so it's often hard for people to even grasp what the science is telling us. But a really good image really is worth a thousand words. I agree with you. And when I think about in science, what is one of the quote unquote classic texts and the definition of classic being everyone cites it and no one reads it, would be Edward, is it Tufty, the, the Yale statistician, I think it was, who wrote The Visual Display of Quantitative Information and several other books on best practices to how best to visualize and, and encapsulate complex data to be visually appealing and also visually understandable. But also to tell the story, right? That's, that's critically important, I think, where, you know, sometimes we can have a pretty picture, but does it actually sort of tell the story of the data in a way that makes it kind of compelling for people and understand why the research was undertaken in the first place. And I guess the other thing that makes this visual display interesting is that when you think of a lot of the data sleuths out there in this reproducibility crisis, or just if you if you read Retraction Watch, a lot of the, 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 the data sleuths are people who are identifying either inconsistencies or duplications of of blots from Westerns or something about the figures themselves that don't, don't quite add up. I think there's a wide variance in just how much time laboratories spend on 
the figures and the summary diagrams they put into their papers. Yeah, like I remember, you know, they're, they're, when I first started writing papers, it was like, okay, the figures come last, right? You write the paper, you figure out what you're going to say, and then you find a figure to illustrate it. But there are other labs that actually there were some projects later on that I worked on where the figures were the first thing that you worked our on. Our figures were the first. Yeah, and it's like in you get our lab, that right, and then you know what the story is. We, put, we had the data that we generated. We take the figures, at least the rough draft figures that we created to try to understand and to look at our results we plot, we put them down on our conference room table, and we tried to understand what is the flow of information, what is the flow of story. Now, someone might say, but is that necessarily the order in which you did the experiments? Not necessarily, and that's not misleading, but rather we're trying to, and, and, and often it was, but it's about how do you make a cogent argument and sort of the, the, the line of reasoning continues throughout. And so we started with the figures. Yeah, but I I also think there are times when figures can be very misleading, and and that is is especially true in neuroimaging results, where you know we all have this iconic image now of the brain quote unquote lighting up, but that has you know that's actually very far from what the data are showing, which are just statistical probabilities. And so you know I think it's I think it's a it's a really interesting thing to think about this importance of data visualization and how Galileo was among the first scientists, although of course there's a long history of them, Leonardo da Vinci and Monica Hall in the nervous system. Them, where you know their ability to show us what it is that they are finding was of paramount importance. Yeah, I, for those scientists, there was a very much an overlap in their artistic abilities to be able to represent and convey the details and the structure and the description and the observations that they made. And Galileo would certainly be cut from that same cloth. And, you know, Mario's art is in really bringing this to a public in a way that is engaging and interesting, uh, but also very deep. So it was such a pleasure to speak to him once again. So that's it for another episode. Thanks for listening. If you want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to get an ad-free version of this show, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. I want to especially thank David Noel, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, Jordan Millar, Claire Waihala, Michael Galgool, Eric Clark, Yushi Lin, Clark Lindgren, Joelle, Stefan Meyer Ewald, and Charles Blyle. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. I'm your host, Indre Viscontis, and joining me today is Adam Bristol. See you next week. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then, there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.